HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal, helping you enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com. The Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture will be hosting their annual Young Farmers and Cooks Conference virtually this year on December 8th through 10th. Programming will cover topics like mutual aid, regional grain economies, land management practices, and much, much more. Whether you're a farmer, cook, butcher, miller, preservationist, processor, or anyone else in the food chain, this conference is for you. Learn more at stonebarncenter.org YFCC. Your brain has an area that sort of filters in all the incoming sensory stimulus. So, you know, you're sitting in a room right now talking to me and, you know, there's light, there's sound, there's taste, there's smell. All of this is going on, but you're not aware of it all at the same time because, you know, your brain kind of filters out the unnecessary information. And the way psilocybin is currently thought to work on that part of your brain is it dials down that filter a little bit. So everything kind of gets the volume turned up a little. Um, and that's that's when also when different areas of the brain start sort of making connections where there weren't connections before. So you might have heard of something like synesthesia where people can, you know, take colours or smell sounds or things like that. So the, at higher doses, there is like a sort of a blending of senses to a certain degree. That's Dr. Kay Mandrake, the author of the Psilocybin Chef Cookbook, breaking down our brain's response to the psychedelic compounds in magic mushrooms. You'll hear more from him later in this episode. Amid a tumultuous election season, one thing became strikingly clear. Americans are warming up to recreational and medicinal drugs. Voters in five states elected to pass provisions legalizing marijuana. Therapeutic psilocybin saw a big win in Oregon with the passing of Measure 109, and Oregonians voted to decriminalize all drugs. This episode has four stories about drugs, and in particular, the agricultural and culinary aspects of them. First, we'll explore the science behind cannabis and cravings. 
Then we'll take a peek into the rise and fall of coca and how the global war on cocaine shrouded this medicinal crop in infamy. We'll hear a cosmic conversation on how one soap company is advocating for psychedelic medicine to heal the soul. And finally, we dig into some psilocybin gastronomy with a magic mushroom maven. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. First up, Tosh Kimmel explores the science behind weed's most mythologized side effect, the munchies. Pizzas, we need two big pizzas, man. Everything on them with water, whole lot of water, and onions. There are a few things more synonymous with smoking weed than eating. And eating and eating. From memes to movies, the trope of the insatiable stoner is ingrained in our social psyche. And while it doesn't take a scientist to figure out that smoking weed makes you hungry, it does take one to tell you why. So, to get to the bottom of this fabled superhuman appetite, I spoke with biomedical scientist and UC Riverside professor Nicholas DePatrizio. So, in general, these chemicals in the, in the cannabis plant hijack the endocannabinoid system. So this system is located in cells throughout the whole entire body, um, including the brain, mouth, gut, you name an organ, we have this system there. As DiPatrizio explains it, it all begins with the endocannabinoid system, a kind of network of cellular receptors throughout the body, which when activated release a positive response in the brain. There are an array of things which can trigger this response, but one of them happens to be high-energy food, or as it's affectionately known, junk food. We've discovered uh, that when, for example, dietary fats touch the tongue, it sends this signal down to the gut to produce our body's natural cannabinoids, the endocannabinoids. And what we've discovered over the past decade is that this system sends a feedback signal, a positive feedback to the brain that drives you to eat these high-energy foods. In short, the receptor response is the reason why junk food can be so addicting— It makes us feel good, even if only momentarily. But what does this have to do with getting the munchies? Well, it turns out that THC, the main psychoactive compound in cannabis, can trigger a similar response, resulting in what most of us understand as a craving. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. So it's activating the receptors in the brain that control reward. It's probably activating the receptors on the tongue that control the taste of foods. It's probably activating the receptors in the gut that control preference for food and send this signal back up to the gut. So if we think of THC as a key which just so happens to fit perfectly into our natural cannabinoid locks, we can now understand why eating fatty, high-caloric food is so rewarding after smoking weed. We not only crave it as a response to the THC, but our senses become heightened, making the taste and smell of those foods even more satisfying. But that's not all. What about that seemingly bottomless appetite? We know why food tastes better when you're high, but how does it affect the quantity of what we eat? We began to dissect the mechanism of why does this system in the gut drive you to eat? What is happening? Does it make you want to eat a larger meal? 
Do you eat more meals? What is happening here? And what we discovered is that the cannabinoids are produced in the lining of the gut, as I mentioned. And what they do is we believe they block satiation. So normally when you're eating food, food, you know, you chew it up, swallow it, gets in your stomach, turn it up a little bit more, pumps through pylorus about into your small intestine where it's broken down further and absorbed and it can also be sensed. And when nutrients are sensed in the intestinal lining, you produce several different chemicals. One of them is called cholecystokinin. Now what CCK does is it controls meal size. So the secret behind that incredible insatiability is cholecystokinin, or rather the lack thereof. When THC enters the body, it blocks this chemical, the same chemical which lets us know we're full. And together with the activation of cravings through the endocannabinoid system, we're left with the munchies. So if you're ever wondering post-smoke sesh how you could possibly have eaten all of that food, now you know. In our next story, Ryder Bell takes us to South America to investigate the history of coca farming in Colombia. The history of cocaine is long and contentious. Images of drug lords and cartels, as well as the harmful and addictive qualities of the white powder, have tarnished any promise it once had as a medicinal agent. But well before there was the processed chemical substance of cocaine, there was its agricultural counterpart, the coca leaf. Coca is a pre-Hispanic plant, okay? And it was grown along the Andean mountain range from the north of Argentina to Colombia's Caribbean coast. That's Maria Clara Torres, a history professor at Stony Brook University who focuses her research on indigenous coca farmers in Colombia. But the epicenters of coca consumptions were what is now known today as Bolivia and Peru. And the coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature, and also as a stimulant, as an everyday stimulant. Coca can also be used for pain relief and altitude sickness and is rich in nutrients. These benefits can be accessed through light chewing or drying and blending the leaves into a tea. In Colombia, the indigenous population that historically consumed coca makes up about 3% of the total population, whereas in Peru and Bolivia, they make up about 30 and 40% respectively. This difference affected how each of the countries responded when global narcotic organizations made coca illegal in the mid-20th century. You can see that in Bolivia, of course, uh, coca farmers have not been as repressed as they have in Colombia, okay? They have a political voice, a very important political voice, to the point that the president, Evo Morales, came to power. Evo Morales, the former president of Bolivia and coca farmer, just returned to the country in early November after seeking asylum in Argentina. He has been an outspoken advocate for the rights of indigenous coca farmers, known as cocaleros, and the global legalization of the crop. Whereas in Colombia, what you see is that coca farmers are declared illegal, they're persecuted, um, the production of coca 
is illegal beyond uh, 50 plants, I believe, in uh, indigenous lands. And so those uh, farmers, um, they live in, in, in Colombia's periphery and they, they are being persecuted and incarcerated. An initiative called Plan Colombia, implemented from 2000 to 2006, aimed to exterminate the coca crop through the aerial spraying of glyphosate, a deadly herbicide, on areas with high concentrations of coca. This is an operation uh, carried out by Colombia's military forces, but uh, supported by the U.S. government. So Colombia has the most repressive policy against coca farmers and against the, the coca itself, okay? So massive amounts of money have been invested in uh, anti-drug policies. And in Colombia, the repressive policies have produced a lot of violence. Although Plan Colombia reduced the supply of coca, its success in reducing cocaine production was negligible. Hectares of coca cultivation decreased by over 50% from 2000 to 2006, but cocaine production only fell by 5.3%. And many rural farmers and activists had their livelihoods and lives taken by military units. Maria Clara explains that the drug problem in Colombia is fueled largely by a rural development problem. Colombian elites seem to be much in favor of repressive measures instead of investing in the rural periphery, right? And the Colombian elites have been inclined to uh, declare the coca hubs to treat them as war zones instead of solving the rural development problems that have not been solved for decades. Projects for alternative development, such as transitioning coca farmers to farming legal crops like cacao, have garnered global investment, but many put the onus on the Colombian government to aid rural communities who feel they have no other option than to grow coca, despite its illicit status. Peasants are just left by themselves, right? And they don't have the capital necessary to maintain those uh, crops or they don't have access to technical assistance. So that's why I'm saying that actually coca is a response to the fact that those peasants have been basically abandoned by rural development policies, right? And what some people are saying now is that actually the Colombian government is the one that should fund those projects. And they they can't rely only on international cooperation. The global war against cocaine, and by consequence Andean coca production, is vastly complicated. For many Colombians, including Maria Clara, a step in the right direction means more government support. Investment in infrastructure and productive projects in the geographical and political margins of the country could provide more stability and begin healing the wounds of those communities. Coming up after the break, I have a report on how a soap company is working to increase access to psychedelic-assisted therapy. Stay tuned. 
This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal. Food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. This episode is supported by Nourish and Flourish. Nourish and Flourish features behind-the-scenes stories about artisans, producers, farmers, growers, and other makers in America, along with delicious and wholesome recipes. The latest issue of Nourish and Flourish is a special artisanal gift guide showcasing some of America's finest products, including everything from the farm and garden to eco-friendly home goods, kitchen and cooking essentials, bath and body, original art, blown glass, seasonal recipes, and so much more. Shop online to support local and buy local. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more at nourishandflourish.site. Welcome back to Meat and Three. Our show this week is about the agricultural and culinary aspects of drugs like cannabis, mushrooms, and coca. And it was inspired in part by a company that's working to increase access to psychedelic drugs in therapeutic settings. Yeah, well, personally, uh, I've, I've experienced the incredible power and deep healing that psychedelic medicines can provide in my own life. Heal soul. Those two words caught my eye recently as I reached for a bottle of Dr. Bronner's magic soap on the grocery store shelf. Usually, the text-heavy labels proclaim all one and heal earth, and they outline the company's cosmic principles. Heal Soul is the company's new campaign, spearheaded by its CEO. I'm David Bronner, Cosmic Engagement Officer, CEO at Dr. Bronner's. David is the grandson of Emmanuel Bronner, the founder of Dr. Bronner's Magic Soaps. My granddad, Dr. Bronner, founded our company in 1948. Uh, he himself was a third-generation German Jew, uh, German-Jewish soap maker, master soap maker. Emmanuel immigrated to the U.S. in 1929 and was a consultant to the U.S. soap industry. After he left Germany, his parents were deported and killed in the Holocaust. In response to all this tragedy... He was having intense mystical spiritual experiences and felt urgently called that if we don't realize our transcendent unity across religious and ethnic divides in a nuclear armed world, that the next Holocaust, we're going to all perish. And he went around lecturing on this peace plan, selling his natural family's Castile soaps on the side. Um, and word got out that these soaps were just so dang good that people were coming to get the soap and weren't listening to what he had to say. And or, or sticking around. So that's when he started to download his all one philosophy onto the labels. Because for him, the label and the message were first and the soap was second. Today, David and his family carry on his grandfather's philosophy. 
So we, you know, from time to time, we'll change the label. It will always be a memorial to my granddad, but every once in a while we'll change it for a particular cause. That's where Heal Soul comes in. We transitioned our court labels for the, for the current three months to be all about psychedelic-assisted therapy, you know, featuring a quote from Michael Pollan. <clears throat> but going deep into, um, into the medicines and the therapies and communicating in a way that my brother likes to say, and my brother, company president, uh, Mike Rauner, that we're communicating in a way my mom's church group can receive and just further mainstreaming this conversation that's been so stigmatized and misunderstood for so long. The Michael Pollan quote that David's referring to comes from Pollan's latest book, How to Change Your Mind, What the Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. It talks about how psychedelic therapy can help free people from the destructive stories they tell themselves when suffering from depression. You know, addiction is basically people self-medicating unaddressed emotional pain and trauma and these medicines and therapy when, you know, approached right and taken in in the correct way and, and, and used as a tool to assist the therapeutic healing process, the inner process can basically cure people, can really just help people who are otherwise suicidal or just, you know, really having a really poor quality of life, really um, reset self-destructive patterns of thought and behavior and lead a, you know, much more uh, higher quality of life and also more open and compassionate and connected to each other, to, to nature. The Heal Soul campaign was preceded by Dr. Bronner's Heal Earth campaign. And that's all about regenerative organic agriculture and its promise, if adopted at global scale, to really um, help reverse a lot of, of damage. Like psychedelics, regenerative organic ag is a shared passion of David and Michael Pollan. He's all about that and now psychedelic integration. Turns out that connection helped David get the rest of his family on board with the Heal Soul campaign. I mean, Michael's probably a big factor. Um, Everyone in my family is already a huge fan of Michael's, all his amazing work on regenerative organic agriculture. And that's been a big core priority for Dr. Bronner's for a long time. All of our major supply chains are, are both fair trade and organic and soon regenerative organic. And that's a, a new certification that brings the best of soil health, animal welfare, and fair labor uh, into a single standard. And, uh, you know, really vibrating on Michael's wavelength and, and his concerns and, and mission in the world in that regard. So, you know, him being a perfect ambassador for psychedelic medicine and therapy for the larger culture was doubly true for my family. So I think that really helped uh, I mean, my family was already supportive. I mean, they support me, and you know, but it wasn't something necessarily that was that big of an organizational priority until the last couple of years, as um, I think my brother and others have just really seen the power that these medicines do have to help so many people. There's more to Dr. Bronner's Heal Soul campaign than the message on the label. We're featuring six partner campaigns and organizations. First, Heal Soul supported the Oregon psilocybin therapy measure also known as Measure 109, and the Decriminalize Nature DC campaign, also known as Initiative 81. Both of these were on the ballot in November 2020. Other organizations supported by Heal Soul include the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS, the Indigenous Peyote Conservation Initiative, 
and two organizations supporting veterans, the Heroic Hearts Project and Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions. Dr. Bronner donated over $3 million to these six organizations. On Election Day 2020, there were big wins for psychedelic-assisted therapy and drug reform in both Oregon and D.C. The resources contributed by Dr. Bronner's Heal Soul campaign helped make them possible. Oregon's Measure 109 was passed, which permits licensed service providers to administer psilocybin to individuals 21 years of age or older. David spent Election Day in Portland waiting to hear the results. Had a beautiful hike in the park in the rain uh, in the morning, and then um, eventually made our way after, got some ramen, and then made our way over to Tom and Shri Eckerts, who is uh, the husband-wife petitioners the, uh, of Measure 109. They themselves are therapists. They work uh, with d domestic violence, uh, both perpetrators and victims, uh, understanding the cycles of, of trauma and violence and, and, and the power of psychedelic-assisted therapy to help interrupt that and heal that. So we we're at their house. And yeah, I mean, in, you know, about 8, 8, 8 p.m., the results were, you know, came in that we were up 56%. And uh, that was a pretty awesome moment. But there was another measure David had a close eye on as well. And another campaign we've been supporting, also in Oregon, Measure 110, uh, one with 58%. Measure 110 is uh, the broad-based uh, treatment, not jail, decriminalization of all drugs, even hard drugs, with the insight that arresting addicts is not helping anybody. And we really feel like having psilocybin therapy and at the same time in Oregon is because there's nothing better for people struggling with addiction than uh, psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, it's a perfect one-two punch in, in the model for the rest of the country. So yeah, it was a very great day. I was celebrating with my partner and, and all my comrades in that effort. And yeah, just super excited to see uh, see it be properly implemented and then uh, be a model for the rest of the country. When I asked David what's next for Heal Soul, he said he wants to ensure implementation of psychedelic-assisted therapy is done right in Oregon so it can continue to be a blueprint for other states to follow. It's really important, obviously, as the first um, state and then, but then looking ahead in 2022, Washington State, their allies there are mobilizing Colorado, maybe even California. And, uh, you know, who knows elsewhere, you know, it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see as things are moving so rapidly now in the culture that we can win with even bigger numbers in 22 in, you know, twice as many states. To learn more about Dr. Bronner's Heal Soul campaign, check out the link in our show notes. In our final story this week, we head across the pond to the UK to hear a little more about psilocybin and how flavor factors into this mushroom's consumption. Within the world of food, the success of a meal can be judged on any number of categories. Taste, appearance, or even creativity are some of the most common. But as a dish becomes more specific, so too does the criteria. A cake may be judged on its texture, a wine on its legs. This holds true within the niche world of cooking with psilocybin, aka magic mushrooms. 
Dr. Kay Mandrake, microbiologist and author of The Psilocybin Chef Cookbook, looks for something a little more specific in his psilocybin creations. For a lot of the recipes, we kind of went on ideas of like flavor pairing, where you're either matching or opposing the flavor of mushrooms. So when you think of mushrooms, they generally have like a similar flavor profile. You know, they're quite earthy, they're quite sulfurous, maybe some of them. Um, So we're looking to either match that sort of woodsy woodland taste with something like dark chocolate, for example, or we're looking to sort of completely counteract it with something like ginger or lime juice or something like that. Dr. K first dove into the world of cooking with psilocybin when his partner, Virginia Hayes, developed an aversion to the taste of magic mushrooms. He thus set out to not only disguise the woodsy taste, but also look to mitigate other negative side effects of the drug. Using things like ginger in some of the recipes, because ginger is known to be an antiemetic, and some people have digestive problems with mushrooms they generally can feel a bit nauseous or something like that so we try and bring in ginger to some of the recipes for people who have that experience or we just recommend making a really simple pot of like ginger honey and lemon tea either to take with the mushrooms or to have during the whole experience and we find people find that really helpful ginger isn't the only ingredient that can be used to improve a trip Dr. K draws on his scientific background to understand how acids react with psilocybin in its molecule form. So there's this idea in the psilocybin mushroom community of the lemon tech, which is where you mix um, lemon juice, essentially citric acid, with your magic mushrooms in dried powdered form. And it basically is thought to start breaking down some of the... Um, some of the mushroom material, it might even make some of the psilocybin itself more bioavailable because psilocybin actually breaks down into psilocin, which is the active compound that causes the psychedelic experience. That breakdown normally happens within the body. Um, so it's not actually, psilocybin is not actually the active molecule. It's known as what's the prodrug. Um so the, the thought is that the acid can start to break down that before it reaches your body. So once you consume it, it's in a more active form from the beginning. Now, this is entirely anecdotal. A lot of people don't know whether it works or not. While acidic ingredients may unleash potency, something like prolonged heating may actually diminish the mushroom's strength. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? And It's really a question of how long are you heating it for, how hot are you getting it, that sort of thing. So a lot of the recipes that we use in our book, we try and bring in the mushroom material as late as possible into the process. So, you know, you might do your initial cooking and you would add the mushroom material in in the same way you might add like fresh herbs or something like that, something that where you don't want to lose like a flavor component. We're bringing it in because you don't want to lose the potency. To accommodate for these chemical alterations, Dr. K finds himself drawn to no-bake recipes. Gummies and lollipops akin to cannabis edibles are a big hit, while one of his favorite recipes is a ginger-lime chocolate truffle. Whether or not you choose to use any magical ingredients in your cooking, it's always fun to reflect on the science that goes into your food. To learn more about Dr. K's confections, check out his book, The Psilocybin Chef Cookbook, available for order online.
That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Tosh Kimmel, Ryder Bell, Emily Kunkel, and Matan Dubnikov. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hello, you can write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>